You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. So someone at Revolution Hall in Portland, Oregon on Sunday night had a great idea. We were there doing a live taping of the Savage Lovecast Valentine's Day live taping and one of the audience members suggested that Scalia be the universal safe word from here on out in BDSM scenes. Is there a more fitting tribute? This person asked. Can you make this happen? This person begged. Scalia 2016. I have to say I think it's a good idea. You know, red – Yellow, green, the lights, kind of infantile. Popcorn was Saturday Night Live joke that a lot of people have adopted as a safe word in BDSM scenes. But I think this would be a good and fitting memorial to the late lamented on the right Antonin Scalia that we should remember him in this way. And I don't say that lightly because ever since Santorum, ever since spreading Santorum, ever since the frothy mix of lube and fecal matter that is sometimes the byproduct of anal sex stuck and that shit does stick – People have been writing me saying, oh, you should do the Santorum thing to Ann Coulter, to Rush Limbaugh, to Ted Cruz, to Alberto Gonzalez, to Vladimir Putin, to all these terrible people. And Antonin Scalia has been suggested in the past as someone I should do that Santorum thing to. And I've resisted all of these calls. First of all, I don't think I have the power to make lightning strike twice like that. And it really wasn't me. The Santorum campaign, a reader's idea, a reader's suggestion, and the readers voted and picked the new winning definition that stuck. I just knew enough to get out of my reader's way. So I don't have the power to do it. Only you guys have the power to do it. I did attempt to redefine Huckabee at everyone's urging, and it kind of didn't stick. Huckabee, when you puke in your mouth a little bit or you're giving a blowjob, but you swallow the puke and keep going. That's a thing that happens, just like Santorum is a thing that happens, but people didn't embrace Huckabee the way they embrace Santorum. So the question now is, will people embrace Scalia as a safe word? I think they should. Can you imagine anything less sexy being uttered during a BDSM scene than Scalia? I cannot. It would stop the action for me. I wouldn't be hard anymore. Whatever else was going on, that just invoking that man would ruin it for me. If you've been under a rock since Saturday night, Sunday morning, you may not know what I'm referring to. Antonin Scalia, Justice Antonin Scalia, 79-year-old smoker, overweight, filled with rage, died of a heart attack on Saturday night. Breitbart, other right-wing batshit loonies are screaming conspiracy theory, accusing Obama of having him murdered or suggesting that Obama might have had him murdered because how often do 79-year-old overweight smokers just drop fucking dead? How often does that happen? And how convenient for Barack Obama that it should happen now during an election year. Now, if Barack Obama was the murderous monster they all paint him to be, I think he would have had Antonin Scalia murdered about six years ago. But I don't believe Barack Obama had him murdered or had anyone else murdered. So if you've been under rock, Antonin Scalia is dead. We now have, instead of a 5-4 conservative majority on the Supreme Court, a 4-4 tie. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. For those of you who are out there panicking about the Republicans saying they're not going to confirm anyone, any of Obama's picks to the Supreme Court, and they want to kick this can down the road and make us all wait until after the next president is elected so that 
President Cruz or President Trump or President Fiorina. Oh, no, wait, scratch that. Or President Bush three can pick the next justice. You might want to stop panicking. A good place to start to cure that panic is to go read Linda Hirschman's piece at the Washington Post titled, If Republicans Block Obama's Supreme Court Nomination, He Wins Anyway. Barack Obama wins anyway. Most of the lower courts are controlled by liberals. If lower court rulings stand because the Supreme Court can't break a tie or weigh in, then we have liberal paradise in many, many, many states all across the country. So that's a piece that will set your mind at ease, I believe. You also might want to read Mark Joseph Stern's piece at Slate, The GOP's Supreme Court Gamble by refusing a moderate Scalia replacement. Now Republicans risk getting stuck with a true liberal later because it might not be President Cruz. It might not be President Trump. It might not be President Bush. It definitely won't be President Fiorina. It might be President Clinton the second or President Bernie Sanders, the first Jewish socialist president. That could happen too. And it's entirely possible the Senate will change hands in November. So it would be a President Clinton or President Sanders sending a liberal justice, a much more liberal justice than President Obama might send to the Senate for confirmation. And we could have a powerful liberal majority on the court if Republicans refuse to confirm a moderate consensus choice made by Barack Obama now. Whatever happens, Scalia's death emphasizes the importance of getting your fucking asses registered to vote and voting this November. Join me in supporting the Democratic nominee, whoever she is or he is. I'm for Hillary. I'm for Bernie. I'm for either. I'm for both. We should all be for either or for both as they duke it out, as they slug it out. I was going to say we don't really have to choose between them, but indeed we do have to choose between them in the primaries, but confident in that either choice is going to be a better choice than any one of the choices the R's are about to make. The importance, of course, is to elect a Democrat in November. So if the Republican nihilist obstructionists in Congress refuse to allow President Obama to be president, most divisive president ever, still presidenting while president, oh my God, so divisive, if they refuse to allow him to fulfill his constitutional responsibilities, a phrase that would make Antonin Scalia, where he's still alive, instantly hard. And they kick this can down the road to the next president. It is hugely important. And it is on us to make sure that next president, if the Republicans stall a nomination or refuse to act on one, is a Democratic president. Abortion rights, marriage rights, money in politics, gerrymandering, immigration, the environment, climate change. All of these issues are going to be up before the court again and again and again in the next few years. And we need a Democrat determining or the Democrat we're going to have in the White House come 2017 if all of you fucking bitches remember to register and goddamn vote picking the next Supreme Court justice. Remember, Anthony Kennedy is 79 years old. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, love her, almost 83. Stephen Breyer, 77. The odds that Barack Obama or the next president will be appointing one or two, possibly even three Supreme Court justices really high. And you're going to want a Democrat in the White House, either of them, come 2017. However, the Democrat in question managed to secure the nomination. We're hearing from some people at the Lovecast 
that they will not vote for Hillary Clinton if she secures the nomination thanks to superdelegates. If Bernie takes the majority of elected delegates, delegates awarded during primaries, and what puts Clinton over the top are superdelegates, which are sort of Democratic Party super friends. They're not going to vote for her. And to those people, I would say you have a legitimate beef and that will be a scandal and we have to change the Democratic Party and make it more hmm, democratic. Still, come November, the choice you're going to face is the lesser of two evils. And there is no universe in which Donald Trump or Ted Cruz or Jeb Bush or Marco Rubio is the lesser of two evils, whether the, any of those men are up against Bernie or Hillary. So – you can't listen to my podcast if you won't promise me. Listening to my podcast, actually, you are consenting to vote for the Democratic nominee, whoever they are. You are not allowed to listen to my show anymore. If you're going to stay at home on Election Day in November and allow Ted Cruz to appoint two or three Supreme Court justices. All right, coming up today on the show, tons of your questions. And on the magnum edition of the Savage Lovecast, I talked to writer Effie Stempler about companionate marriage. Hi, Dan. I am a 27-year-old uh, heterosexual male. Um, I have what I consider to be a relatively mild kink in that I enjoy uh, uh, happy ending massages. I have visited a uh, local massage parlor, Asian massage parlor. I'm not sure what the proper term is. Uh, several times. I've only been to one, but I've been there a few times. Uh, and I've been interested in expanding out into more of the private therapist uh, sessions. Uh, I have been searching on Craigslist and, and that page and found that there are quite a few options out there. I guess my question is I'm a little bit worried about and uh, about how to set this up. Uh, I'm worried about scams and uh, other dangerous situations that I might potentially find myself through contacting somebody through one of these services. Uh, is this an unfounded fear? Have you encountered these kind of things before? Uh, what in your mind would be the best way to vet any potential uh, therapist that I seek out and the best way to, to set something like this up. I am so very, very disappointed in you. Not because you're going to massage parlors that offer happy endings. You ask what the proper term for that is. It's technically proper term, Jack Shack. That's what we call those Massage parlors that offer happy endings in the trade, a Jack Shack. Not disappointed that you're going to Jack Shacks and getting jacked and shacked. Disappointed that when you began to share your concerns with me about contacting independent providers via various websites, your concerns all revolved around your own safety. And that's legitimate. Legitimately, you can take those concerns into account and you should. But I was so hoping that you would be one of those guys that I'm often talking about when I talk to people about sex work because I get so many letters every day and often calls from guys who are interested in hiring a sex worker and usually the top concern and if not the top concern, certainly on the list is how do I avoid hiring someone who is doing this against his or her will? How do I avoid hiring someone who has been trafficked? And trafficking is blown out of all proportions, but there are some people out there who are indeed forced into prostitution, forced into doing sex work against their will. And how do I do it with somebody who isn't being coerced? And some people add to the coercion concern economically coerced by their own circumstances. I don't know how it helps somebody who is doing this work out of desperation because they really need the money and doing it of their own 
free-ish will. We should live in a society where everyone has a guaranteed minimum income and no one would have to do this if they didn't want to do it. It wasn't a choice, but I don't know how it benefits somebody who's doing it because they have no other way to make money to not patronize that person, particularly if you're a good and thoughtful person. That's the kind of person that they would most benefit from being patronized by someone who is concerned for their welfare too. But you didn't list that as one of your concerns. I was so hoping you would because I'm always telling people that the guys I hear from who are hiring or looking to hire aren't monsters who are just obsessed with their own dicks, their own orgasms and themselves. And then you come along and I play your call and I'm hoping – I'm rooting for you as I listen. Don't be a monster. Not that you are a monster. You don't come across like a monster. But don't be a monster. Don't be one of those guys who's just thinking about himself and his dick. And then in the end, you never get to her. You never get to your service provider and her safety, health, and welfare. And I'm very disappointed in you for that reason. There's a lot of talk about regulating sex work these days that centers around stigmatizing not the sex workers, not the providers, but the Johns, the buyers, real men don't buy sex, and the Swedish model, which doesn't really work and winds up penalizing and punishing sex workers themselves, even though the whole concept or the way it's sold is we're going to go after the guys who buy sex because they're the real monsters. They're the real assholes, not the victims who are selling sex. They're just the victims who are selling sex. And I'm always in the position of telling people that, you know, this effort to make everybody buying sex out there look like a selfish shitbag monster asshole is bullshit. Because when I talk to actual sex workers, including some of my friends who are sex workers, I encourage everyone out there to make a friend today who is a sex worker. And when I hear from guys who are hiring, they aren't assholes. There are some assholes out there. Of course, there are some asshole dentists. There are some asshole clients in every profession. There are assholes everywhere. But to just blanket declare all guys buying sex are assholes is bullshit. And we should point to not just best practices for sex workers, but also best practices for clients. And a concern for the health, safety, and welfare of your provider tops that list. Anyway, to answer your question after expressing at great length my disappointment in you for playing to the stereotypes about guys who buy sex, pretty simple. Look for – this is the advice from my sex worker pals. If you're really concerned about finding someone who is legitimate, finding someone who isn't being coerced or trafficked, finding someone who's doing it of her own free will and enjoys the gig, look for someone with a standalone website, not just a quickie ad on Backpage or Craigslist or anywhere else. Look for somebody with a standalone website. Look for somebody who has reviews on review boards if they have not all been pulled down by now by the feds by the Department of Homeland Security, which is out there protecting us from all the jihadis that want to sell us blowjobs and handjobs, I guess, these days. And look for women who are older. Look for women who are in their 20s, well into their 20s and 30s. If your concern is, as it should be, to be with someone who's not being or less likely to have been coerced or trafficked. That's the advice. That's the answer to your question. Enjoy your Jack Shackery. But be a better person. Next time you call into a sex advice show to ask a question about this, you, sir, you caller, please take a moment to express at least some concern for your provider as well. Hey, Dan. My name is Amanda. I've been with my current boyfriend for about two and a half years. We are 22 years old, so pretty young. But we've recently been talking about having a threesome. 
it's actually something that we've been talking about for a while, and I have thought a lot about it, and it seems like something that I think would be really fun to explore, and he was also definitely okay with it. Um, his birthday is coming up next month, and I'm wondering about surprising him with one, and if you think that's a good idea or not. Aren't you nice? But that's a terrible idea. And we're going to approach this again from a different angle, not from the angle of you and your feelings, your boyfriend and his feelings. But let's take the third and the third's feelings. If you surprise your boyfriend with a threesome, if you go and find someone and you tell her, I'm going to assume it's a her because most guys have the her, her, him threesome fantasy. You go and tell her. Your boyfriend's always wanted to have a threesome. You're thinking about surprising him. You show her his pictures and she's really into it. And then surprise, she's there in the bedroom or in the living room. And you say, happy birthday. It's a threesome. And what if your boyfriend balks? What if your boyfriend isn't attracted to the person that you picked? What if your boyfriend isn't in the mood? What if your boyfriend found out two days ago that he has crabs or scabies and has not yet informed you and had come over to tell you about that. That would put him in an awkward position. And as he shuts that shit down, who's really going to be hurt? You and your boyfriend are going to stick around and process it. You're going to find out what the problem was. But that person who gets sent away is going to be crushed. They're going to feel really rejected. They're going to feel cast off. You don't surprise somebody on Easter – with a bunny, with a baby bunny, or a chick, and you don't surprise a boyfriend on his birthday with a human being. You go to him and you say, happy birthday, let's make that threesome happen. I have a couple of candidates, let's fantasize and talk about it. You fuck the shit out of him on his birthday, promising him, telling him about the threesome that you're going to have. That's hot. People have a lot of hot sex in the run-up to a sexual adventure. That's part of what makes sexual adventures and planning so good for people, but you don't surprise somebody with the dungeon they fantasized about visiting, with the three-way they thought about happening, with the cuckolding experience they always wanted, with anything. You don't surprise people because what if they're not in the mood? What if they're not ready? What if you send the third away? Also, threesomes require a lot of advanced negotiations about his desires, your desires, his comfort levels, your comfort levels, and the third's comfort levels and desires, even if your third is a higher you can't really have those conversations at a surprise birthday three-way party. You have to have those conversations when the stakes are lower, when things are mellower, over drinks or whatever in the run-up. So bad idea. Well, not a bad idea to give your boyfriend a three-way for his birthday, but you're, the plan you've made to execute this three-way is a terrible plan. No surprise three-ways. Three-ways like vacations, invasions, and weddings require advanced planning. Hi, Dan. I'm a 42-year-old bisexual in Toronto. I'm very bisexual, 50% gay, 50% straight. And I've had several long-term relationships with men and women. When I was in my 20s, when it came to jobs, I usually stayed in the closet, even when I was dating a guy. I worked as a tradesman, and you can imagine most guys use about bisexuals and gays. And also, I never felt like I'd be at the jobs long enough for me to care. Well, now I'm working as a lineman. I love my job, and I knew right away that I would have this job for a long time. When I started this job, I was engaged to a man. So from day one, when guys started talking about their wives or girlfriends, I talked about my male fiancé. I am the first out gay guy in our department. I work only with men, and it can be pretty rough and crude most of the time, but they're really a really great group of guys. 
The job's pretty intense and demanding, and we all depend on each other to go home safe every day. So basically, the levels of testosterone and macho at my work are pretty high. So when I started, most guys were very welcoming. I made some good friends right away, and about the worst I was treated by some guys was being avoided and a few comments behind my back. But over time, I earned everyone's respect, and now I get along and talk and joke with everyone. I'm one of the first guys everyone wants to put on a crew with. So here's the problem. All I've ever said at work was that I was gay. A couple years ago, I broke up with my guy. And for a while after that, I dated guys and girls. And well, I started to fall in love with a woman. She's awesome. We are great together. She loves that I'm bi. We have great threesomes and is fine with me having sex with guys on my own. She's also bi and I love hearing about her getting together with girls. Basically, I can see us being together forever. So the problem part is that I don't know if I can come out at work again. I'm afraid that the guys will say things like I'm really just straight and that I'm not like other gay guys. I don't want the guys I work with thinking that gay men can't do our job or that I'm in any way different from gay men. I just don't want the guys I work with to go back to thinking all gays are feminine and timid. Also, <clears throat> I'm worried that a couple of the religious guys will start thinking that gay guys can be turned straight by doing manly things. For now, when I talk about her, I speak as though she's a guy and call her by a guy's name. She understands, but I know she doesn't like it. So wondering what you think I should do. Thanks, Dan. On behalf of all gay men everywhere, for whom I speak every week on this podcast, I release you from your obligation to us, from your obligation to not let the guys that you work with think that after all this time that indeed gay guys couldn't do the job that you have done. So I release you. Don't worry about us. Tell the truth about your fiance and tell the truth about yourself. You're bi. Indeed. You are not like other gay guys because you are not a gay guy. And when they say, why did you tell us you were gay? Why did you identify as gay? You give them my three-layer cake analogy. Sexual identity is not the same thing as sexual orientation. Sexual identity is a three-layer cake. The le first layer is who you want to do. The next layer is who you are doing. And the top layer is what you fucking tell people. And if your layers are all in neat alignment, then congratulations. You're not Ted fucking Haggard. You're not a mess. And then you would tell them that there are a lot of people out there who are bi, their bottom layer is some of both, but who identify as gay or lesbian or straight because who they're doing is exclusively one thing and that feels closest to their lived truth, if not the truth of their sort of root sexual orientation. So there are a lot of people out there, particularly lesbians, who identify as lesbians who are functionally and desire-wise bi. And you were one of those guys. You were with guys for such a long time. You were engaged to be married to a guy and you just rounded yourself up or down, depending on your POV, to gay. It was just easier, simpler. You contributed in some small way to buy invisibility and some people are going to have a problem with that. And that is indeed a problem and bisexual people should be out. And now is your chance to be out as bi. And don't worry if these guys on your work site, on your crew – these guys whose respect you've won even though you put dicks in your mouth assume that, oh, a real gay guy couldn't do this job. Not your monkey, not your circus, not your problem to come to the defense of gay guys. You just have to do you. You do you as the kids were only too recently saying and let the next gay guy who comes along in the trade and gets a gig at your company worry about proving to all these Knuckle dragon macho men that someone who sucks cocks and only cocks can do this gig too. Aren't you nice? Hi, Dan. I had a question. I was wondering how long do you have to be dating someone in order to earn the right to ask them to trim their pubic hair? I ask because 
I was the recipient of this. I've been dating a guy for under two months now, and uh, just today he asked me if it would be at all possible for me to maybe do some manscaping. We have not DTR'd yet. So I didn't, I was kind of taken aback by it, not turned off, but I I just kind of was a little shocked that somebody would ask under two months of dating to clean up down there. What do you think? There's no Emily post period of time that a person is supposed to wait before they ask this kind of a question. There's no two month, three month, four month, five month marker where it becomes okay. Obviously, the moment when he asked you felt like it was too soon for you. So you have to decide what you're going to do with that. I would if I could have gotten you on the phone and I tried to get you on the phone, ask just how hairy your ass is down there. How much pubes are you asking him to chomp through if he's blowing you or rimming you? How much hair is he having to ingest? If he's one of these guys who grew up consuming tons and tons of Tumblr porn and other kinds of porn where nobody has any pubic hair and he's asking you to remove the one or two Charlie Brown strands of hair down there around your cock, well, yeah, that might be just a little annoying. But if you are very hairy or your pubes are exceptionally unruly and you want your dick in his mouth and in his face, I think he has perhaps a right after two months of fucking the shit out of you to ask you to trim him back so that your pubes when he's blowing you and your balls deep in his throat, sorry to paint that picture for all the delicate straight guys out there listening, aren't poking him in the nose and going up his nose. That can be annoying. So ask yourself how much you like this guy. Ask yourself if this is something you can process with him. Like, wow, that was kind of from left field. Made me a little self-conscious. Maybe think maybe that was too soon. Let's have a conversation about expectations and demands and emotional IQ to see if we're on the same page as we continue to get to know each other better and date. That will allow you to have a conversation about expectations and what he can ask of you at this stage or later stages and what you can legitimately ask of him. If he can ask you to trim back your pubes because he has a preference for less hairy or indeed even hairless dick, are you allowed to ask him to to hit the gym, to do some crunches, to wear outfits that are more to your liking, to put a puppy mask on, whatever it is? Are you allowed to ask him? So you can view this as an unforgivable affront to your bodily integrity and dignity and pubic hair, or you can seize the opportunity and have a conversation with this dude. Hey, Dan. So I am a 30-something married lady, been with my husband about four years, four and a half-ish, something like that. At any rate, uh, in the beginning of our relationship, the first year or so, uh, he did not go down on me, which was okay because he did lots of other stuff that made our sex life awesome. Uh, And I was also okay with this because I'm not a big fan of blowjobs. So I figured, eh, it's even. Uh, then he started to go down on me, like, amazingly and all the time, except I'm still not a big fan of blowjobs. Uh, he doesn't really complain about it, but there have been, you know, some little comments that suggest that, obviously, he would like that more. So my question to you, good sir, is how do I make myself like blowjobs? What can I do? Anything? Are blowjobs ever an acquired taste? I know cum can be an acquired taste and cum can be person specific. Some people, their cum tastes good or not as offensive as other people's cum that can taste terrible or toxic. But are blowjobs an acquired taste? You don't like giving blowjobs and it wasn't a problem. The husband didn't particularly 
eat you out often or at all. But now things have changed and he's gotten into oral, as people said in the 60s and 70s, when oral was the height of kink. Your husband got into oral. And there have been little comments. The first thing you need to do is stop deflecting the comments, stop talking past each other, stop tiptoeing around the issue and have a conversation. You need to check in with each other. You need to say something has changed in our sexual repertoire. used to be that oral really wasn't something we did. And so I didn't feel particularly guilty about the fact that I don't like sucking cock. But now you're eating my pussy all the time and you're making these little comments that are making me feel a little subconscious about the fact that I am not reciprocating. So let's have a combo about that. It could be that he so enjoys eating your pussy that he's going to eat your pussy whether or not you ever suck his dick because it turns him on to eat your pussy. Take a look at his dick while he's eating your pussy. Is it rock hard? Is it in his hand? Is he pre-coming like crazy? Then there's something in it for him even if you never blow him back. Sometimes we look at reciprocation and we treat that like it's black and white. There are people who enjoy performing an act so much that they don't necessarily require that same act to be performed upon them in turn, that their enjoyment is in the doing of it. Maybe that's how he feels. Maybe he would like a blowjob every once in a while, but even if you never blow him, he's going to keep eating your pussy because he likes it because it gets him off too. If indeed he wants a blowjob every now and then, and if indeed you are so guilt-ridden as to want to learn how to like giving a blowjob, I have some suggestions for you. It is a blowjob, not a lease. You can put his dick in your mouth for a little while. It doesn't have to stay in your mouth forever. You don't have to blow him to completion. You can incorporate a little bit of oral as foreplay before you jump back to vaginal. And you can use your hands. There are some people who think that if you add a hand to a blowjob, that it's not a blowjob anymore. Because it has to be, look, ma, no hands. Or it's not a blowjob. People often have look, ma, no hands rules about sex entirely, that if somebody touches themselves with a hand during sex down there that they've ruined it, then suddenly it's reverted to masturbation and it's not really partnered sex and that's bullshit. Your hands are tools that you can employ rolling throughout a sexual encounter. So in that blowjob, if you want to give him a blowjob, put a hand around his dick. Put just the head of his cock in your mouth if you can stand the taste. If you can't stand the taste, send him to the shower until you can stand the taste. Just let the head be in your mouth and work most of his dick and shaft and also his head with your hand. Get it wet. Get it sloppy. Perhaps we should call this a faux job because it's really just a hand job with the mouth engaged and involved and drooling out a lot of saliva to make it wet and sloppy and blow jobby without requiring you, maybe this is your objection to giving head or your problem with it, not requiring you to be face fucked, not requiring you to have a dick so far into your mouth that your jaw is uncomfortable or your gag reflex is engaged. You can give a blowjob and a really satisfactory one where the dick doesn't get any further in your mouth than the head. It is a doable thing that could be an option for you. I bet, though, that if you have a long conversation with your husband about oral sex and about what's in it for him when he eats your pussy, you may discover that he is content to keep eating your pussy even if you never go down on him in turn. But that's something you can learn if you stop having little comments and start having an actual conversation. Hi, Dan, Nancy, and the Tech Savvy at Risk Youth. I'm a bisexual cisgendered man in an open relationship with a bisexual cisgendered woman. We both see other people, and I have a question about analingus. I want to eat her ass, but she has two concerns. First, 
She's worried that if my tongue accidentally slips from her anus to her vagina, she could get an infection. Is this possible? Is there an easy way to prevent it? And second, she's worried I'll get sick. Do people get sick from eating ass? As with wiping, so too with rimming. You don't want to go from back to front because you don't want to introduce dangerous bacteria into a woman's vaginal canal. So if you're going to eat her ass, you might just want to stay there and not proceed to the front of the room, right? Just stay on butt for a while. Don't go back and forth between ass and twat. Good rule of thumb for rimming. Yeah, there are risks and dangers. There are intestinal parasites or bacteria that you can ingest through rimming. Rimming, however, is a really common sexual practice. And while there's data out there about gays and lesbians and rimming, roughly 25% of gay men rim often and roughly 10 to 20% of lesbians also rim often, there's not a lot of data, according to Leigh Miller, who writes a terrific sex blog that you should be reading at leighmiller.com. There's not a lot of data out there about straight people and rimming because this isn't a question that's put to straight people on straight people sex surveys. And it's not a question that the government is going to pay researchers to go run down the data on. That said, there's a lot of ass-eating going on and not a lot of people who are constantly sick with Giardia and other intestinal parasites and illnesses that could be passed through rimming. So there are risks, but there are rewards. And clearly, a lot of people have concluded that the small risk of some nasty bug passing is worth shouldering to get at the reward of the pleasure of rimming, whether receiving or giving. Of course, rimming presents risks for all the other standard sexual STIs that are risks with all other sexual acts involving skin-to-skin contact, herpes, HPV, syphilis, gonorrhea, even HIV, if you have braces and you're aggressive, could be a risk. So if you want risk-free rimming, either don't rim or use a barrier, which no one actually ever does. You can just put saran wrap over her ass and you can put a little lube on the butt side and use your tongue on the non-butt side and really go to town and give her an experience and maybe be a good idea for her first few experiences where you can remove the anxiety of her getting you sick or you getting shit bugs all over your face and then coming up to kiss her or getting them somewhere else on her body or person. Use some saran wrap. Have a few anxiety-free experiences where the sensations come close to what the sensations will be once she comes down and you can leave the saran wrap in the kitchen when your tongue is in her butt. Hi, Dan. I'm 28 years old, straight female, and I, my boyfriend and I just broke up, and it's good because we were not good matches for, long-term, uh, for the long term, but he was the best sex I've ever had. He, he's got a great dick. He's extremely aggressive and dominant and talks really dirty, which I loved. And uh, he used to tell me about how much he wanted to watch me fucking other guys and fuck me while I'm fucking other guys. And that wasn't something I had ever thought about or considered, but after, you know, fantasizing about it with him, it was something I really got into. And um, now I'm genuinely afraid that I'm never going to find someone who turns me on as much or gets me off like he does. I've had probably about 30 lovers and none of them have come close 
to giving me an orgasm, whether by going down on me or fingering me or fucking me. And he gave me orgasms during intercourse, and it was amazing. Um, and I don't know if I'll ever find someone who I want to spend my life with who also shares those same fantasies about watching me fuck other guys and something I never got to try with him but want to. Anyway, I'm wondering if you have any advice on how I can, how to help me move on because I'm having a hard time letting go of this. And I just, I, I want to let go and if, wondering if there's hope for me uh, finding that in someone else. You will never meet another guy who likes to talk dirty about crazy sexual fantasies during sex with a lady. You will never have an orgasm during intercourse again. Abandon all hope. You can have this again with other guys. I promise you there are guys out there who would love to bust out a stream of filthy talk about their fantasies and hear about your fantasies during sex, whether they're fantasies you ever intend to realize or not, or that he would ever like to actually realize in real life or not. But those guys, for the most part, are perhaps inhibited, worried that if they just bust out a stream of dirty talk that they're going to shock the nice lady who has welcomed them into her apartment and her bed, and she'll run screaming from the room because most women, at least at your age, are not open to this kind of dirty talk yet. The questions I typically get from women your age, women in their 20s, about dirty talk is not how do I find it, but I've been asked to do it and I don't know how and it's not particularly exciting for me to do it and I'm all nervous and I have performance anxiety. And what you want is this done. Just be clear. This is clearly what you need. This is what you need to get off. This is what you need to come during intercourse. This is what you need. You need to hear dirty talk. You need to hear about crazy sexual fantasies involving the person you're with and perhaps other people too. You just need to hear shit. Things have to be said out loud where your clit and pussy and erotic imagination to fully click into gear and for all pistons to be firing. So put that on the table. Clearly, don't be ashamed of it. Put it out there. The guys in bed with you, they want to know what they need to do to get you where they're trying to get you. And the more information you can give them, the more grateful they'll be. Or if you shock them and what you're asking isn't something that they could do, you don't want them in your bed. They are the wrong guy for you. You don't want to wait wasting your time on that guy. If you tell some guy that during sex you dig and need a lot of crazy-ass dirty talk, you need to hear crazy shit, and you don't say this perhaps the first time you get into bed, but maybe the sixth or seventh time you get into bed. And then there's a cartoon hole in the wall where he ran from the room. Good fucking riddance. Wrong guy for you. Not going to be able to give you what you need. So the rejection you fear if you roll this out with someone is, a, as I've said to a million other people on the show, rejection that you should be running toward and embracing when you get it. Because what it means is wrong guy. Don't want to waste your time on the wrong guy. You want to keep rolling those needs out, making those demands until you find the right guy. How wonderful for you. This is a good problem to have. You now know what works. You now know what you need. This boyfriend helped you discover that. And now going forward, you're going to put that out there without shame, without apology. You're going to do it in good time so people know that you have good judgment. Good judgment is something we look for in partners and we never talk about it. It's very important. You're going to do it in a way that demonstrates consideration, a high emotional IQ and good judgment, which means not over the salad course if indeed you're going to go on a traditional first date, but in the flow after you're already 
establishing a sexual rapport, when you begin to open up to each other more and share more about your needs and desires and wants. Put it out there. Don't mean to gender this at the last minute. Be a dude about it. If a dude needed this to come, it would be out there immediately. It would be on the table. It would be a salad course conversation on the first date if the dude needed it. Many dudes would put that out there immediately. Don't be hesitant. About this, be a cliche dude. Hi, Dan. 25-year-old gay guy in the Rust Belt with a foot fetish here. I eat and suck and worship a lot of feet. And tonight, for the first time, I sucked someone's feet uh, that the entire foot uh, fit in my mouth. And it was really hot. He was, you know, fucking my mouth with his foot and I was choking on it. But his toenail cut the inside of my cheek. So I'm just wondering how risky this is uh, to have a toenail cut the inside of my cheek. Uh, I'm on prep, so I'm protected from contracting HIV. Um, But other than having excellent uh, oral hygiene, uh, what are some ways I can reduce the risk of contracting something from someone's foot if their toenail happens to cut me. Perhaps you should consult a podiatrist about various foot fungi that you may be introducing into your oral cavity and whether there's a risk there. But the incident that you describe where this guy's entire foot was in your mouth, I hope it wasn't a giant ass foot. I hope you didn't break your fucking jaw and you cut the inside of your mouth on one of his toenails There's no risk there really for you. You bled on that guy's foot. That guy didn't bleed into your mouth. You didn't rip that guy's foot open with your teeth. Your mouth didn't fill with his blood, which would, of course, bring risks for hepatitis, risks for HIV and other bloodborne pathogens. You'd have to worry about that. But you bleeding on his foot where there are no cuts, he's the one who should be worried about perhaps having contracted something from you if he had an open cut on his foot that your blood was introduced to. And pretty aggressively introduced to you. You'd have to push it into him practically. And if that didn't happen, there's really nothing to be concerned about here. Just in future, to be on the safe side, examine those toenails before you go to town. And if they need a trim, incorporate that into the foreplay. Hi, Dan Savage. I am a French-Canadian queer. And I am wondering about uh, your opinion on, like, uh, marriage. Basically, I've had this um, best friend who I share my life with for the past 12 years. They are like my life partner. Um, it's like we have a very romantic friendship. We've like had sex when we were younger, but it's we're not like lovers. But we've shared our lives, no joke, for 12 years. And we've been talking about getting married. And I don't know. I was just wondering what you think about um, marrying someone for companionship and if it would be a good idea or worth it. Joining me by phone to help field this question, Effie Stempler, a freelance writer, lives in Berkeley, California, had a piece in the New York Times a couple of weeks ago in the Modern Love column called Platonic Until Death Do Us Part about the most significant long-term relationship in his gay life. Hey, Effie, thanks for jumping on the phone. Thanks for having me. So... First, let's talk about your, the, the column that you wrote. You have a really good friend. You've been in this person's life for a very long time. You're a gay man. She's a straight woman. Am I right? Am I remembering this correctly? That's right. 
And you wrote this really kind of beautiful column about really toying with, not toying with, thinking about, seriously thinking about, potentially marrying this woman, having a companionate platonic marriage. Uh, you weren't married when the column ran just a couple of weeks ago. Have you married this woman since? No. Are you still thinking about it? Um, yeah, I mean, no. I don't, you know, it's funny. I don't think that, I don't think that, I mean, in writing it, I actually, it's funny because I get a lot of responses. You know, people are like, congratulations. Yeah, when, when's the wedding? Where's my invite? A lot of responses like that. Yeah, exactly. No, it's not, it's not, it, it really wasn't about it. It was more kind of like a, just a look at this, this institution of marriage and, and how much it has kind of messed with my head. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm 41 years old and I've had, you know, so many, um, mostly short term relationships with men. And I think that part of the reason that they didn't work is because I just had this ideal that was ultimately, I think it was based in marriage and this idea of marriage from Hollywood and advertising and religion. That there were the, the perfect one was going to come along and you had to make sure whoever you're dating was the perfect one because you're gonna have to make this lifetime commitment. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I just, to me, the perfect relationship is, is, you know, this combination of platonic and romantic and, and it was bizarre because I, I didn't really see that many examples of that in my real life. Mm -hmm. Um, really not until I moved to the Bay area and I started to see a lot of non-traditional relationships, non-monogamous relationships where uh, mostly gay men were so happy. They just seemed so happy um, as friends first and foremost. And I think that was really the first time that I understood the importance of friendship um, in a relationship. I really couldn't see how much of my life was kind of just in this cloud based on just bullshit. <laughs> so were, were you ending were you ending relationships in the past, sacrificing good relationships on the altar of the perfect or the one? Like, here's a good guy. I could see myself with him, maybe, but he might not be the one. The one might be out there. The perfect friend, lover, companion is out there, and I haven't found him yet, and this guy might not be him, so off he goes, and I'm going to continue my search. Was it that kind of paralysis? I mean, that's a, that's a really good question, uh, because I, I just don't know. I don't have to answer that. I've been with a lot of different types of guys, and I do think that ultimately, because what I have with Marissa um, is so kind of electric, it's so hard to match that. She really is, to borrow the phrase, uh, or to revive the phrase, because you hardly see it used anymore, she is your longtime companion. Yeah, she really is. So. And she's she's this straight woman, and she has a child, and you guys share a home. She has two children. She has two children, and I live um, with her. I mean, we didn't. We lived together at different periods um, throughout our lives. I've known her for seventeen years, and and I, and it was a constant thing of like, when am I going to get out of this? And there was just so much shame around it. And then finally, I had this really amazing opportunity to live in the same house with her, but in like the, this unit in the back of the house that's that's practically a separate house. And, and it was just, um, it was amazing. We moved in a year ago and, um, it was exactly what I needed. I didn't understand, um, that really I just needed a family. It sounds like what you have with Marissa is a home. It makes me think of that famous Robert yeah. Frost quote. Home is the place where when you have to go there, they have to take you in that Marissa right. over the course of your relationship has been the place where when you had to go somewhere, you went there and she took you in. Now, some would say that unless it's a sexual and intimate relationship, 
uh, and a romantic relationship, that it would be a sham marriage. But traditionalists from 300 years ago, social conservatives from 300 years ago, would recognize what you have with Marissa as a traditional marriage. That it is this partnership yeah. that's rooted in respect and friendship and shared responsibilities and not rooted in sexual passion and desire. That sexual passion and desire, you used to have lover, you had a spouse and you had lovers. You had lovers for desire and passion and because love was fleeting and lust could be yeah. fleeting and it was very unstable, very unstable element. But mutual respect, uh, mutual interdependence, uh, kids together, those things are lasting. And when love conquered marriage in Stephanie Kuntz's wonderful phrase, social conservatives were appalled because it destabilized marriage. It, in a way, right. it led to the divorce culture that we see today, which for me is kind of a freedom culture. People are free to marry and free to leave marriages when they're not what they want or not working for them. But what I loved about your piece in the New York Times, the column you wrote for Modern Love, was really it was uh, a call back to this kind of marriage that's devalued that I've talked about a lot on the podcast occasionally in the column over the years that I think people shouldn't shit on, which is a companionate marriage where two people are together and it's not about sex. And it doesn't have to be about sex, but it's still, it can be still a very valid, loving, and mutually supportive marriage. Well, I, want, I want to just ask you a question about this, but why, why even marriage, you know, in relation <laughs> to the call? Like, you know, I really, it was interesting because the caller... Oh, right. I completely forgot about the call. <laughs> yeah, no, that was a wonderful... Oh, this person, I, I definitely want to call her because I thought, I, I just, I could relate immediately mm -hmm. But my only question is, like, why, what, why, you know, and, and why marry and that's at all? Question that, yeah, I mean, so many people seem to, after this essay, are like, well, are you guys now going to marry? And, and it's, and it's kind of like, that's, you've missed the point. It's, it's not about that. It's kind of like, we have it. And I've bought so many fucking gifts for so many, for so many weddings that they didn't even work out. And now it's kind of like, well, yeah, I don't, I don't, I'm not even thinking about that. I'm just thinking about, about enjoying what I have and celebrating it just in living. Can I tell you what marriage brings that you don't have? Please. What, what marriage does? Uh, yes, one of the most imp important incidents of marriage, which could be crucial to you, depending on who your family is, and to Marissa, depending on who her family is. Marriage creates your most immediate next of kin. But you're saying that the actual contract does that? Yes. If you marry... Oh, you mean in terms of... You mean legally speaking? Yes, I mean legally speaking. Not just okay. in All your right. hearts, but sure. legally speaking, uh, if you two were to marry, you would have next-of-kin relationships. She would be your next-of-kin. She could make medical decisions for you in a crisis. You could make medical decisions for her in a crisis. It would give you, right. uh, you know, if you adopted her children with her, uh, rights and uh, obligations that could be very important. I mean, think of the relationship you're building with her children... And if something were to happen to her, where do they go? And what happens? Well, to the I mean, this is that's, I'm not taking care of the, of her kids. That's the thing. I mean, that's another thing. But she has. We have there. There's there. She has, there's two dads in the picture. I mean, we're definitely a modern family. We all <laughs> um, kind of. We really. It's it's a it's a Berkeley <laughs> kind of situation. But but I understand where you're coming from. Yeah, I definitely understand that. Um, I, you know, I don't know. I mean, I, it's something to consider. I, I, you're right in that sense. It is something that I that I. But I guess I should think about it. It feels like I'm trying to talk you into kind of what I thought you were talking yourself into with this piece. You open writing about Stephen Daldry, uh, the guy who wrote The Hours and Billy Elliot, who's gay and married to uh, a friend, a, a woman named Lucy. Right. Uh, 
uh, because their friendship is really the foundation of their marriage. And a marriage can be a friendship. Um, right. I don't think a marriage has to involve uh, orgasms necessarily. A lot of people's do. A lot of people's do initially, and then that passes away, and then they don't. And the marriage is about what's left. And sometimes what's left is what you and Marissa already have. And I'm not trying to talk you into marrying Marissa if you don't want to marry no, Marissa. No, no. <laughs> I guess that does make sense in, in certain ways. But just because she had, there are, there's so much love mm-hmm. in our lives and in, in our home. You're right. I don't. It's not something that we think about, um, you know, who's going to take care of the kids in case of an emergency. But yeah, as, as John Corvino points out in his book, Debating Gay Marriage, which he did with uh, that vile uh, woman who co-founded the National Organization for Marriage, the most important incidents of marriage kick in in the worst moments of our lives. You immediately cited gift registries and juicers and toasters as the most important incidents of marriage. But really the most important incidents of marriage tend to kick in in emergency rooms and funeral homes and really the darkest moments of our lives. When someone who we've built a life with is empowered to see us through a crisis or the end of our lives. And it was my experience and the experience of a lot of gay men my age. I'm just a little bit older than you or a lot older than you, I think. I'm d- a decade older than you. It was my experience during the AIDS epidemic uh, to watch a lot of couples who'd been together 10, 15, 20, 25, 30 years treated as strangers under the law and families bursting in in those moments in hospital rooms and ERs in funeral homes and separating those men. Right. And, and that was scarring. Uh, I mean, traumatizing in the extreme for the guys who that happened to, the survivors that happened to, but scarring just to witness and to hear about how vulnerable people were who could not marry. Right. Yeah. And and now and now today, how vulnerable people who could marry but don't, people leave themselves open to that if they don't avail themselves of the rights of marriage, and it is kind of the right to exclude to a certain extent. By yeah. declaring your most immediate next of kin. You know, in 10, 20 years, if something should happen to me, it's Terry who's going to make decisions. It's not right. my, my dad's not going to jump on an airplane in Phoenix, Arizona and be here in three hours and throw Terry out of a hospital room, which I don't think he would do. Mm. He's my dad's not a monster and my dad respects us, but I want that gold plated and ironclad, which it is because we're married. So should I propose to her when I get home? <laughs> That's up to you. But, you know, if you are building a life with her and you want at the end of those lives to be empowered as next of kin or during life crises, like John Corbino says, the most important incidents kick in at the worst moments, not the best moments. We all talk about flowers and cakes and gift registries and uh, wedding halls as if that's the important shit. And that ain't. Yeah. That ain't the important shit. No, no, and that's, this, that part I've, I've figured out. Uh, I think, to be totally, totally honest, I think there is probably some part of me that still um, wants to believe that there is this perfect person. I mean, I'm just being 100% honest. It's so interesting when I read the comments, people who are just kind of like, well, once you understand what it's like to have this, this perfect being, this platonic and romantic, you'll, you'll, be somehow, you'll somehow experience life in this, I don't know, elevated way. And I, and I, and oh, that's bullshit. it looks so rosy, right? And that's like looking at people's Facebook profiles. It looks so rosy. Everybody looks so good on their, their curated social media accounts. There are a lot of people out there who married for romantic reasons who are miserable. It's really interesting. I would just have, you know, that the, the moment that I sent that to the New York times, ironically, Marissa then got into this huge, huge fight 
And, and I really was just like, well, what is, you know, what does this mean? And, and maybe, maybe this was bullshit. Like maybe what, what I wrote was actually just like me trying to convince myself that this was some, somehow something deeper than it really is. And that what I'm, that I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm missing out on something. Uh, you're there in, you're there in Berkeley and you can have a marriage have and you've seen people who have marriages and lovers too. That, oh yeah. And who have marriages oh, yeah, the, that most, are most platonic. There are a lot of people, particularly you see this in a lot of gay couples and, knock on wood, cross fingers, Terry and I, not yet, but where there, it was sexual and it was intimate and romantic for a long time. And now it's a partnership and now it's a marriage and they have lovers on the side right? or in addition that aren't hidden and that aren't shameful. And that's not about infidelity or betrayal. It just is what it is Mm -hmm. where they're the couple, they're the, the married couple. And then they have boyfriends and they're part of the family too. And you can have that with Marissa skipping the 15 years of, Diminishing returns on the sex and intimacy part. Well, let's talk about that just really briefly, though, because I just have to ask you, and this is probably my biggest question to you, because I really, I still am confused about this, apparently. And that is, if you have this combination of romantic and platonic, I think for me, the reason it seems so magical is because it's kind of like, wow, I've achieved true vulnerability, because that's putting it all on the line. You know, and I, I think I've beaten myself up so much because it's like, well, I haven't really put it all on the line. You but, know, like, but hey, hey, I, hey, we're still. But you yeah. have because you've you, I have I have both in one person and you've had both in different people. Why is the way you've had it deficient compared to the way I've had it? Who said who came down from what mountain with tablets and said the only legitimate way to experience this or the best way to experience this or the highest form of experience of this is this bundled together in one human being. Stop torturing yourself with that. You're capable, you're capable of sex and intimacy. You're capable of forming a romantic attachment and you're capable of forming a long-term platonic attachment. So, but what happens? I am curious what happens if I do end up meeting a, a guy and falling in love and it's, and it feels like a, like a partner. What, what happens then if I'm married to, to Marissa? Any guy who would enter that and say, uh-huh. pick me or her and not you can have me and her is no one you could be with because you wouldn't pick someone who forced you to make, choose between him and Marissa. That wouldn't be the right partner for you. You wouldn't betray. It doesn't even Marissa exist. Isn't that crazy? I don't even, I haven't even, I can't even fathom meeting somebody like that. Maybe that's part of the problem. I, it's hard. The, the I mean, longer you're in Berkeley, just, the likelier you're going to meet someone like that. <laughs> I hope so. Welcome to California. <laughs> okay really quickly before you go let you you and i we we never answered this uh, poor french canadian queers question we've given our opinions on marriage we've gone round and round on our opinions on marriage plenty on that should she marry mm-hmm. her best friend and life partner you contemplated in a very public way in the new york times marrying your best friend and yeah. life partner and you haven't so what's your advice to her should she in 25 words or less Yes. Okay. She should. <laughs> yes. Let's just have it in one That's word. That's it. That's it. <laughs> if she wants to, if she wants to, if people are going to dive into the New York Times to read your piece of modern love, platonic and deductuous part, I would also direct people to the obituaries, which is an aging Irish Catholic, oh, my favorite yeah. section of the New York Times, to read right. the obituary for Martin Richards, who was a Broadway producer who died in 2012, who was married to a woman for 30 years, and he was openly gay. And they mm-hmm. loved each other, and everyone who knew them both said it was a really successful, respectful, 
tender marriage. They're just, they just didn't fuck. And the only thing she asked of him was not to embarrass her, which he did not do. He won an Oscar. He was one of the producers for Chicago. He was, a, he was an amazing guy and gay and married his best friend. It's so then you don't think there's anything wrong with, with, I with him? There's I, real, you, I don't. I don't. I don't. He doesn't have some deep issues, you know some homophobia, th- some no, no, no. You know who I think there's okay. something wrong with? People who marry people they hate, whether they're fucking them or not. Right. right. Okay. So, yes, I've answered the question. She should absolutely marry the person. <laughs> the way that this person um, put it is actually really beautiful. She described it, I think, as romantic friendship. And I think that is something that is... I, I think that is something most people don't get to experience. It's something, it is truly, it's such an interesting kind of combination of fantasy and, and like childlike magic. Uh, but also there's, there's, you know, there's friendship, there's depth and, and I, I by all means celebrate that. And, and yes, get some juicers in the process and send me one. <laughs> God, Terry and I got married and nobody got us a juicer because we didn't accept gifts. The, the essay is platonic until death do us part in the modern love column in the New York times fashion and style section by Effie Stempler, freelance writer in Berkeley, California. Thanks so much for chatting with us today. Thank you, Dan. Hi, Dan. I'm a 24-year-old female, and I have a group of good friends from college, and we all still remain close. Two of the group, let's call them Susan and Mike, have recently gotten engaged. However, the rest of us have some major reservations about the upcoming wedding, and it's making it difficult to act happy for them and attend wedding events without feeling bad. The main problem is we all know that Mike has cheated on Susan more than once. I know for a fact that they don't have any sort of open relationship. And in fact, Susan has mentioned when it's come up previously in conversation that should she hypothetically ever have a partner who cheated on her, that she would be furious, and it would definitely be a 100% extinction level of Now, normally I would follow your typical advice of shut up and don't say anything since it's none of my business, and perhaps that's still the best course of action. However, this impending wedding, plus the fact that we are all friends with both of them, makes it feel a bit tricky. If myself or any of our other friends tell Susan what we know, we feel like we would be betraying Mike and sticking our nose where it doesn't belong to the detriment of him, and he's our friend. However, if we keep quiet and don't say anything and she finds out, especially if it's after the wedding, I know she will feel betrayed that we all knew for so long and no one told her and humiliated that she married this guy in front of a bunch of people who all knew he was a cheater. I'd be afraid it would ruin our friendship and she would be hurt and angry with me for keeping Mike's secret. So either way, I feel like we're in a tough spot. Recently, Susan's sister hosted an engagement party and our group of friends all commiserated on how awkward we felt attending and it was made even worse by the fact that two of the girls he cheated with were invited to the party and it was so uncomfortable. I'm not sure what to do. Uh, Either way, I feel like I'd potentially be hurting someone, but at the same time, they're young and I'd love to see them have a chance to meet new people and find better partners since they don't seem to be that great of a match to begin with. They got together freshman year when they were really young and the relationship seems to have just gone downhill. Uh, After they graduated, they moved far away from friends and family and have admitted feeling bored and dissatisfied with their situation. They even told us, quote, that we argue with each other just so we have something to do. So I don't know, maybe blowing Mike's cover and telling Susan he's a cheater would save them from entering into a potentially unhappy marriage and waking up five or 10 or 15 years later divorced. I don't know. Any advice, Dan? So any developments? Nope. (laughs) No developments. Uh, No one has said anything and the wedding is still going forward as far as we know. Any bridal showers or bachelorette parties in the interim since you called? No, no, not not currently planned that we know of. Okay, So so there probably will be. Everybody feels terrible, right? For for this poor girl. Yes. Yes. 
Yes. Have you guys had a conversation, you and let's say just the women that you know who know her, who know what's going on, with the exception of the women that he cheated on her with who were invited to the party, the engagement party? Uh, yeah. The exception <laughs> of those bitches. Have you guys had a conversation um, where you've asked yourselves, if we were Susan, would we want to be told something? Would we want someone to say something to us if we were all Susan collectively? Right. No, there's been conversations uh, like when we were driving down to the engagement party, a conversation in the car, but it wasn't just the girls. It was guys and girls. Uh-huh. And? It's a conversation was, kind of about like... And what, what was the consensus? No, uh, no real consensus. I mean, everyone just kind of was like, uh, I don't know. <laughs> but But the question I'm specifically asking you is if you were in her shoes, would you want people to say something to you? Yeah, me personally, yes. Okay, well, that obligates you then to fucking say something to her. Okay. The do unto others golden rule. We push the Bible a lot on this show, you know. The do unto others golden (laughs) rule, what Jesus said shit about treating others as you would like to be treated yourself applies here. Even if it's difficult, that's what friends are for. And who knows? Maybe she knows. Maybe she knows that she's been cheated on and she keeps up a, a public face of pretending that that hasn't mm-hmm. happened, lest all of her friends mm-hmm. think he's an asshole. And they've worked through it and processed it. And the engagement is him putting a cap on his doggish single years. And he's committed to do his best to honor the monogamous commitment that he's about to make to her. Maybe that's where they're at. But you guys aren't going to know that until you talk to her. And if that's not okay. where they're at – Somebody needs to say something to her as she stands there covered in gasoline at the altar about to light the match. Right? Yes. <laughs> That's what I, I think so, too. I just didn't know the, like, don't put your nose where it doesn't belong type uh, rule applies. Well, sometimes friends have to speak up and tell us things we don't necessarily want to hear, even knowing that she may get angry not at her fiancé but at you. Right. And I would, if I were you, enlist two or three other people to march in there together and have a big I am Spartacus moment. We are all here to tell you <laughs> this so that just not right. one person has to take the fall. If she opts, instead of being angry at her fiancé, to be angry at all of you, the bearers of bad news. She decides to execute mm-hmm. all the messengers and bridesmaids instead of executing the engagement, which may be right. what she needs to do. But be open to – what she has to say to you next because what she says next may surprise you Mm -hmm. because there are a lot of people out there who have been cheated on and are fine with it or they've worked through it and have gotten past it. But you know, to uphold sort of the public consensus on cheating being terrible and open relationships being terrible, they say what's expected of them in front of people, but in private, they have a very different conversation. You know, I'm Mm -hmm. not saying they're open, but there's a lot of couples who are open who deny that they're open Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of couples who've worked through and gotten past an infidelity or or a series of infidelities right. who nobody knows, the, you know, that private conversation mm-hmm. and how they process it and how they've worked past it. So she may turn around and tell you things about their relationship that makes you feel more comfortable supporting her and going to the wedding. And then mm-hmm. not to then it'll help you not to look at Mike as just this irredeemable asshole because if he's redeemed himself in her eyes, that should redeem him in yours. Right. But you're not going to know sure. any of that until you have this conversation. And my money is right. on she knows nothing and is standing at the yeah, altar so covered in gasoline with a matchbook in her hands. Right. And somebody's got to run up there and slap that matchbook out of her hands because a divorce is so much more embarrassing, so much more protracted and awful than a broken engagement. Yeah. 
So yes, we should do it. And it should be more than just me, a couple people, a couple people and not just do it and more than just you, but do it soon. Okay. Don't kick the can down the road any longer. Halls are being booked. Caterers are being called. Whatever it is you do with caterers, book them or engage them. <laughs> That's all happening. The, 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 the machinery of the wedding industrial complex is grinding into motion and is going to pull your friend under if you don't run out there in the street right. and grab her hand. And it'll only get harder the more things get booked. Yeah, it'll only uh, get more embarrassing. If you guys hem and haw right. until the invitations are out, canceling the wedding is that much more embarrassing. And she may decide to go ahead with the wedding to avoid the embarrassment of canceling the wedding and hope that, you know, his new promise to never do this again and his expressions of remorse are sincere when perhaps they're not. And against Mm -hmm. her better judgment, marry the dude to avoid the embarrassment of canceling a wedding that the invitations have already gone up for. So get in front of it. Mm -hmm. And if she blows up at you and she's mad at you and Mike is mad at you and you're disinvited from the wedding, is that a wedding you want to go to anyway? Right. Not really. (laughs) Yeah. Exactly. Be the grown up, be the friend, even if it's difficult. Great. Thank you so much, Dan. You're welcome. Good luck. Hi, Dan. I'm a 33 year old Hedu woman calling from far away Nigeria. I've been dating someone for about nine months who I just started to realize suffers from crippling insecurity. Um, basically, he goes into this really emotional downward spiral. If I have any contact with my exes, or men who may have once expressed interest in me, whether I reciprocate it or not. Um, and his reaction is bad enough that I've held back from seeing these guys in the spirit of compromise, but I do maintain virtual relationships with them, like over the phone and the internet. Um, and I know you're going to tell me to dump the motherfucker already, and I may get around to that, but, you know, I'm calling you from across your continent and an ocean and part of my continent for a more pressing reason. Basically, I want to get your thoughts on how I can tell these other guys in my life why I can't spend time with them in person yet, because, you know, there's hope for the future. But without, you know, sort of highlighting the fact that my boyfriend, who I do love most of the time, is an insecure teenager trapped in an adult body. Um, I live in a small community, and, you know, even if we do break up, I don't want him to sort of lose face amongst his peers. And, you know, people really do talk where he gets around. Um, I just want to be decent about this while we're still together and, yeah, be a decent human being toward him, even if he can't bring himself to be decent towards me just yet. Um, What do you think? Your boyfriend is not the victim here of himself or anyone else. Your boyfriend does not suffer from crippling insecurities. Your boyfriend is a controlling, abusive asshole. And right now it is effective for him, apparently with you to tart up his control issues and his abusive personality in the drag of weakness and insecurity because it elicits sympathy and understanding from his girlfriend. I guarantee you, I promise you when that strategy plays out, when it no longer is effective, when his, tears and insecurities and whatever else, however he presents this to you, when that stops being effective, when you begin to show no more patience for it, it will shift instantly from, oh, sad me and crippling insecurities and I'm having a feeling to violence, emotional violence, emotional abuse, and perhaps physical abuse. Not all people who engage in this kind of controlling behavior are physical abusers, but almost all physical abusers engage in this kind of controlling bullshit behavior, particularly around exes. You have got to send this guy packing now. Even if I knew what you could tell your other friends, your other guy friends, that would 
communicate to them that you can't hang out with them right now without causing your boyfriend to lose face in the community. I wouldn't tell you what that was. I don't know what that was, would be. I have no clue, actually. But even if I did, I'm not going to tell you. And I don't, but still. Because that's not what needs to happen here. You need to dump the motherfucker already. You know what you need to do. And it's only a matter of time before you do it. Do it now. Don't wait. Don't wait for the shift when it goes from, oh, I'm so sad and I'm having such a feeling and my crippling insecurities and boodly doodly hoo to rage, anger, violence, emotional or physical. Don't wait. Don't be there. When he realizes the woe is me routine isn't working and he tries some other strategy to isolate and control you. Run. Run, run, run. It is particularly worrying that he's blowing up at you with this boo-hoo, woe is me shit when someone expresses an interest in you that you didn't respond to in kind and that you didn't encourage. When that happens to you, and often when that happens to women, it's unwelcome and unpleasant. And then to have a male partner who's standing there when that happens to you and it's unwelcome and unpleasant who then blows up at you about that as opposed to sympathizing and empathizing in the wake of that is not a man a woman needs. Women move through life, move through adulthood being flirted with and hit on by aggressive men everywhere. A woman can't risk having a male partner who regards these things that happen to women when they fucking leave the house as something terrible that woman did to him. You cannot tolerate that. You cannot put up with that. But you love him. Okay, then say, I will not tolerate this. I will not put up with this. You grow the fuck up and you get the fuck over this or I'm out. And if he doesn't grow the fuck up and he doesn't get the fuck over it, you're out. And if instead he does what I goddamn know in my gut he's going to do if you stand up for yourself, if you stand up for your right to be in relationships, and yes, these are relationships, friendships are relationships, he is going to shift instantly from this sad sack manipulative bullshit to anger, rage, volume bullshit and potentially violent bullshit and then dump him. In either case, you're going to end up dumping this asshole in the end. The only question is how long you're going to wait, how many friendships are going to be left to wither and how many times you're going to be his emotional punching bag, and whether you're going to continue to risk becoming his actual punching bag. Get the fuck out. Hey, Dan. Uh, I'm a 24-year-old straight guy, and I just brought a girl to my place, and we start having sex. And about midway through, uh, she tells me to, she wants me to come for her. And when I say midway through, I mean like, this is like two minutes after penetration, and there was plenty of foreplay. So this is like right in the middle of the movie, right? And uh, so she tells me to come, uh, and so basically I, I position her where she's sitting on my bed, and I'm standing, and she's blowing me. Now, things wrap up, and then she stands up, and I, you know, um, you know, we we start dressing and cleaning up and stuff. And uh, I noticed that where she was sitting, there was a blood stain on my bedspread. And it was... I noticed it before she did. And so when I went out of the bathroom or went out of my bedroom to go to the bathroom, when I, uh, when I come back into the bedroom, she was fully dressed and was sitting on the blood stain, obviously hoping that I had seen it. And then when I left the bedroom again to get, uh, a, uh, get her a glass of water, she, uh, had put my a pair of my socks, obviously on top of the blood, uh, the blood stain. So you, uh, hoping that one, I hadn't seen the blood stain and then two, I wouldn't put the socks on. 
So I went over and I put the socks on. And then things are awkward and she leaves. And uh, I'm just wondering, was that fucked up what she did? Like, was that, or was that out of her control? Like, could she not really help it at that point? Thanks. Welcome to the show, Nancy Hartunian. I'm so glad to be here. Producer and period haver. <laughs> yes, proud period haver. And I am proud of your periods. <laughs> I, I'm envious in some ways of your periods because there's so much you can get away with during them just by blaming, right? <laughs> not that any woman would opportunistically use that. But okay, let's just focus on the problem here and not get me in trouble. <laughs> she just began to have her period during sex. She went home with him and began to realize in the moment that she was her period had commenced. Is that what you think happened? Yeah. Yeah, she just got her period. That happens. That happens sometimes. You get your period and there's some blood. And blood. so our advice to this guy would be, fuck you, eh? Right? Yeah. And you need to learn more about women's bodies, particularly if you want to root around inside them. At age 24, you should know this, that women have periods, blood comes out of them, and women don't get a telegram the day before. Yeah, no, it, uh, and a little bit of blood on the bedspread is not enough to make you get so upset. You take some hydro hydrogen peroxide, and you pour it on the blood stain, and it comes right out. And you, you, do you just got a blowjob, my friend. And you, or you do what the gay people do, and you get dark fucking colored sheets. <laughs> yeah. As Ryan Landry sang, all the sheets are brown because the town is gay. Because the, the town, town is gay. gay. Like things comes out of people's bodies. When you have sex with someone and you invite them into your bed, you invite them into your home, you are inviting them to enter your space and let things come out of their bodies, which doesn't necessarily mean it's all going to be saliva, vaginal secretions, or semen. Like sometimes accidents happen when bodies are in play. Yeah. And his freaking out about the blood, I, that just strikes me as um, a tad bit uh, naive and or dare I say it, misogynist? Or perhaps he's a victim. He's 24 years old. We don't know where he went to school. We don't know what kind of sex education that he had. Perhaps he was homeschooled and raised in ignorance about the way women's bodies work in hopes of keeping him pure or and I off thought, the V, and I, it didn't work. Or I thought you meant as a victim that he had witnessed a crime scene before <laughs> the slightest sight of like one drop of blood just sends him into PTSD. I don't, this, this call made me really mad. It made me really mad too, but I'm, I'm trying to like back away from beating the shit out of this guy. Cause I don't want to get shit all over his bedspread either. Maybe he's <laughs> listening in bed. We don't want to get shit all over the room either, but maybe he didn't know this. Like it's possible for people to get into their early twenties. So fucking log stupid, so ignorant about human sexuality, particularly about women's bodies. We get calls from women who are so ignorant about women's bodies that maybe we shouldn't beat the fuck out of him. We should give him marching orders. What does he need to do besides hydrogen peroxide? Right. He needs to clean the sheets and then he just needs to recognize that if you're going to be with, with females, you're going to encounter some blood. And there that's, will be blood. There will be blood. It's going to be fine, my friend. It's going to be fine. There's going to be a little blood. And it's worth it, right? She did give you a blowjob, did she not? I don't know if you gave her an orgasm. She realized she was... Her period was commencing. She spotted. She spotted naked while sitting on your bedspread. Don't invite anyone to sit naked on your bedspread who's bodily anything you're unwilling to find later on your bedspread. And she immediately pivoted to, well, I guess my vag is out of commission. Here's a blowjob. Not that her vag is necessarily out of commission during a period. You can totally have period sex. Google Rachel Lark, warm, bloody, and tender, and watch the shit out of that video. 
And she obviously felt embarrassed. Have a little empathy. Have some empathy for her. She was she was covering it up because she felt embarrassed. And that's sad. Yeah. But in the moment, she didn't feel empowered to say, whoops, my period just started. Lucky you. Lucky you. You're going to get a blowjob. <laughs> Unless you're like down with being covered in menstrual blood, we should probably stick to oral or mutual masturbation at this point. And if you're worried about your precious bedspread, maybe we should move to the tub or the yard or the grass or my bedspread because I'm not a fucking pansy-ass wussy who's terrified at the sight of blood. Although, you know, in defense of guys, guys don't bleed out their genitals. Like if you haven't encountered that ever, if this is the first time in his life he's ever encountered that, he may – it might legitimately have freaked him out a little bit. Maybe am I being too nice to him? Yeah, and right, you're being I'll too nice, being to, nice him. to him. You know, he's lucky that I didn't turn this on our our listeners because it could have been another drippy gate, and you don't <laughs> want that. It's going to be another drippy gate. We are going to get so many fucking calls about this guy and his quote unquote problem. Dear Dan, I have a problem. I got a blowjob. Thank you. Please help. I got a blowjob, and there's a red dot on my bedspread. Hootly hootly hootly. Get find a girl to clean it up for you. <laughs> Does he deserve a girl to clean it up? <laughs> clean your own fucking sheets and then go Google, go read the wiki pages for vagina, for the female reproductive system, for menstruation. Go read a few fucking wiki pages and learn a little bit about where you're trying to push your face and your dick before you push your face and dick in there. Okay. There's nothing left of this caller, right? Wherever he is, he's a little pile of dust on a bedspread. Or maybe he heard the first part of your advice and has already left the house to go buy the bottle of hydrogen peroxide or to take my advice and the advice of gay men everywhere. Get some fucking dark colored sheets. These people who have white sheets, like, what are you thinking? What do you do in bed? I have nothing more to say. I'm spent. (laughs) You bled out. You're done. Hello, this is the apparent douche who called about the issue with his cum coming out of his uh, wife. I think that when I left that message, it came off in a way that it wasn't intended to. This was an answer that my wife and I were both seeking. Um, We've been happily married for a very long time, and uh, it's not that issue. In fact, we use condoms 90% of the time because of the issue, which I don't don't mind at all. I, I, I take the point that some people had said that I said, is this a problem with my wife or other women? I'm not a radio personality, and I don't know how to speak on the radio, nor do I know how to leave a, a 30-second voice message and, and hit every detail. It could have been me. The most uh, informative response I heard was that maybe it's about viscosity, and that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, I was looking for a solution, not, well, whatever. My wife and I both got a lot of laughs out of this. I just have a comment for episode 485 to the uh, caller who was asking about reusing sex toys. I would never, it would never occur to me to throw them out between partners. For one thing, many, if not all of them, except maybe harnesses, assuming you don't use them for your own personal gratification, are single-use toys. So if your partner squished up the idea of using it as that you used it on somebody else, just pretend. Say you only used it in masturbation. Problem solved. Additionally, I'm not going to throw out all of my sexy clothes every time I start, get a new partner. And if they think that it's ridiculous that I use the same set of bra and panties to turn on my previous partner, that's their problem, not mine. So I would say keep everything that's cleanable and healthy and safe, like Ben said. And other than that, sex toys, especially good ones, are expensive. 
Hi, Dan. This is in response to the woman who was asking about whether to reach out to her ex-boyfriend who owes her money. Um, I was in a similar situation two and a half years ago. My ex-boyfriend owed me $3,800 when we broke up. I decided to write it off as the cost of the relationship. And just last week, he emailed me and said that he wanted to pay me back and he is paying me back in installments. So you never know what can can happen if you are kind. And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you want to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. We have Fuck First and GGG mugs for sale. I am drinking my tea out of a Fuck First mug right now. If you want to get a Fuck First mug of your very own, go to thestranger.com slash Savage Swag. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. And speaking of Twitter, Cooper S. Beckett tweets, When talking about oral sex and cancer risks, Dan, why not talk about oral barriers? Perhaps I should have mentioned when we had that conversation about head cancers and oral sex that you have the option of using dental dams and condoms for oral. I would point out, though, that during the worst years of the HIV-AIDS epidemic, when people were dropping dead and dropping dead quickly, we couldn't get anybody to use latex barriers for oral sex. And it's worth a mention, so Cooper S. Beckett, thank you for that suggestion. Cooper S. Beckett, of course, is the author of My Life on the Swing Set, Adventures in Swinging and Polyamory, and he has a new book out, A Life Less Monogamous. Go to alifelessmonogamous.com to check it out. And while you're on the internet checking things out, go to humptour.com to find out when Hump, my little porn film festival, is coming to and on your town. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian, and me and Nancy and the Tech Savvy at Risk Youth, we will all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast next week.